Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hey guys, welcome to the first episode for the month of July. So I've been a bit quiet on the social media front for Junior Doctors Corner lately because I've been a bit busy with work and exams and also I was working on a photo shoot. So keep your eyes peeled, Junior Doctors Corner is going to be getting a brand spanking new cover. Now for today's episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Genevieve Yates. I met her through a MDA National CPD Points workshop. I learned so much from her. It was about communications with patients and I thought that it would be a great idea to get her on the show to you know, help spread her knowledge and wisdom. Before we jump right into the episode, don't forget to check out the Junior Doctors Corner Community Facebook group. In here, I will be giving you exclusive access to episodes that are not published on the internet. And also, I'll be organizing a mini workshop through Facebook Live. So click join and all you have to do is answer a couple of questions. For the moment, this group is only open to Australian junior doctors. And as if we get a lot of interest from our international buddies, I will be opening up to others. But for now, I'm keeping it local. So I hope you enjoyed this this episode. Hi Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us on Junior Doctors Corner podcast. You're welcome, my pleasure. So for our listeners who have not had the pleasure of knowing you yet, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Thanks Dana. Well, you could say that I'm a GP and a writer and a musician um, who happens at the moment to do very little GPing, very little writing and very little music. Um, so actually I spend most of my time in the education, legal and regulatory spaces. Most of my work is with the RACGP, that's the Royal College of GPs. I'm the principal medical educator for the RACGP nationally. I'm also the Queensland State Censor and the chair of the pre-fellowship expert committee on education. Uh, I also work for um, APRA uh, and for um, MDA National. So my work with MDA National is uh, in education um, development and delivery, and that's in fact how we met each other um, last couple of weeks ago when I was doing a session on managing impaired health literacy in Brisbane. And I just want to acknowledge MDA um, as supporting the work that we do and and, and really just uh, emphasising how much they value the education of doctors and, and particularly around uh, ongoing upskilling and reflection on communication with patients, which is um, what we're going to be talking about today. So as well as my work for MDA, I work for Black Dog uh, and Black Dog Institute, um, doing a lot of mental health teaching of mental health practitioners and other groups. So for example, last week I did a session on suicide with um, the Australian Federal Police. So I really love teaching all kinds of groups of um, professionals in various areas. Uh, I also work for Medcast, which is a company that does um, education for doctors and particularly on um, 
a project called Hot Topics in which once a year we look at all the latest research that's going to be affecting general practice and give um, QICPD, so continuing professional development workshops on the latest research and how that affects us as general practitioners. I also do a lot of freelance medical legal work, so providing comments um, when doctors get in trouble, so professional opinions, etc. Um, do performance assessments, that sort of thing, and some freelance medical education work. So I'm kind of busy in all that, so I don't get a lot of, a lot of time seeing actual patients, but I do continue to work at a practice in Ballina, which is in northern New South Wales. Um, I like to call myself actually the AF doctor um so because i'm irregularly irregular with my with, uh, <laughs> with uh with seeing clinical patients so um so this is it's a bit hard when people ask me to describe myself so uh, you mentioned that you teach doctors on how to communicate with patients and with each other uh and you also mentioned that we met through the mda national workshop i thought that was a really really useful workshop to attend because i myself have made mistakes and had my frustrations with uh, communication with patients in the past uh, particularly with patients of uh, low health literacy or um, hearing impairment um, and sometimes unfortunately in the past I haven't identified it and thought that I had been doing the right thing so uh, thank you so much for teaching you know this really important topic now um, with, with this specific uh, interview and this spe specific episode um, we will be focusing on the communication with patients um, so, Genevieve, what's led you to this passion of yours? So, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate basically about teaching anyone anything. So, uh, from demoscopy and skin cancer surgery to conflict resolution to leadership skills. Um, but the communication skills, as I mentioned, really under pins all of this and no matter what how good you are technically as a doctor and how much you know and what kind of skills you have in procedure medicine you're not going to be able to achieve the outcomes that you need or have the kind of patient satisfaction that you desire without having a really solid communication skills with patients. The other thing that has led me to feel this is an area where I need to focus is because when I'm looking at the the regulatory side. So when things go wrong, so when patients are made, uh, complaints are made through the you know, the um, uh, health complaints commission um, to APRA, etc. When people get in trouble with their professional bodies, with their hospitals, with each other, um, all of these not all of these, but a large number of those have communication breakdown or difficulties or misunderstandings as either a major reason or a sole reason for these for these upsets. And you'll be surprised about how how essentially how how far you can get being a doctor, not knowing a whole lot, but being a good communicator. Now, I'm not advocating not knowing your medicine, <laughs> but I'm but I'm saying it is equally, if not more important, to know how to best communicate with patients than about knowing your actual medicine. So, you mentioned, Dana, about the um, impaired health literacies, and that's one of the, the things that we really do underestimate as doctors. So, we 
usually assume patients know more than they actually do or understand more than they actually do. And that can lead to a whole range of different uh, poor health outcomes. So it can be about those consenting without understanding what they're consenting to. It can lead to medication errors. It can lead to a problem with negotiating the health system. So probably what we should do is just talk about what impaired health literacy is. So impaired health literacy is not um, is not just about whether you can read or write. Uh, health literacy is understanding both the way the body works, but also how to negotiate the health system. So it's it's knowing that, you know, if you have crushing central chest pain, you should go to an emergency department. Uh, if you have constipation at 3 a.m., you probably shouldn't go to the emergency department. So it's, it's knowing when to present, where to present. It's knowing to do, if you get a, a form to do and get a blood test, what does that mean? Where do you go? Uh, it's also about how to take medications. It's understanding everything really that allows you to get help appropriately to be able to look after your health. So when you have impaired health literacy, people can either miss appointments or not get the tests they need to do. Um, they can they can have mis perceptions about their health. They don't adhere necessarily to recommendations. They have fewer, fewer um, episodes of health screening. Um, and overall, this leads to increased morbidity and mortality. And studies both here and overseas have indicated that poor health literacy is a really significant problem in sometimes 30 to 40% of our patients. And it's something that doctors don't often appreciate. They may sort of understand that people don't understand, but they don't really think about why necessarily, and they don't always take adequate steps to address this impaired health literacy. Yeah, that's the same. Uh, sorry, that's sort of been what I have struggled with, particularly in my first year um, as a doctor or intern, um, you know, particularly when you're time poor and you're rushing to, you know, get all these jobs that are thrown at you done. Um, I, I found it hard to sort of really take the time to drill down and, you know, check make sure every single patient of mine understood everything that I'd explained to them. Um, and, and, you know, I sort of went through hoping that they did. And the other thing was I didn't realize that health literacy meant they, uh, it, it encompassed understanding how to navigate this very complex health system that we have as well. Um, I thought that it was uh, enough for patients to understand human physiology or at least basic physiology. So, for example, if I had a patient who's a nurse or, you know, had some kind of um, university degree, so, you know, more highly educated, it would mean that um, they had good enough health literacy. So, that's a, made a couple of really important points, Dana. Um, first of all, just about your last point in regards to thinking that those that had reasonable education levels also had high health literacy, and that's certainly not the case. So, it's quite a famous case of a uh, previous New York City mayor who happens to be Trump's lawyer currently, um, Rudolph Giuliani, who uh, has and this is published information. I'm not uh, talking any kind of secrets outside school. Uh, but he he had a positive 
prostate biopsy. And uh, when he was told that the results were positive, as in a positive biopsy, he thought that meant that that was good. It was great because positive is a positive word, obviously. So he thought, okay, that Mm. means I don't have cancer. There's nothing wrong. And this is someone that at the time was the mayor of New York. So it can be about jargon, but it can be more about that, that those that have high health literacy, so have high literacy and other educations don't necessarily know what that means. Um, And even doctors can have poor health literacy when it comes to specialties which aren't their own or in unfamiliar health environments. So if you and I went to a different country that had a very delicate different health system, we may actually have impaired health literacy as it applies to that particular system. So, we can't Mm. make assumptions about people's health literacy based on other factors such as their literacy. However, that does it can give us a hint, it can give us a bit of an idea that perhaps these these people are going to understand more than um, someone that hasn't got that level of education, but we have to be careful not to make assumptions. Which brings me to your mm. second point, or actually your first point that you made in relation to time. Mm. Now, time is very much the enemy of uh, both assessing and managing impaired health literacy. Uh, and We are stuck between a rock and a hard place often when we're looking at uh, trying to spend enough time with our patients to understand, to explain things adequately and just as importantly, make sure they actually understand what is being explained. Now, there aren't any shortcuts to this, but there are ways that we can try to um, be efficient to try and make the most use of the time that we have. So, one of those things is that um, you need to look at other clues about whether or not someone is understanding. Actually going through every patient and making sure that they understand everything you say is completely impractical. It will also annoy your patients. Uh, But if you, (laughs) you need to think about, first of all, is this likely to be something this person doesn't understand? Taking into consideration other factors such as their previous medical history, previous exposure to the health system, general education levels, etc. But you also have to decide how important is it that this particular bit of information is well understood and how complex is it? So, if there's a very simple instruction that's not very important they get right, then you don't need to spend time necessarily double-checking this. But if it's something that's got a, a very important consequence if it gets wrong, so for example, if you're prescribing methotrexate, it's really important the person knows it's going to be a once-weekly dose, not a once-daily dose. And if people are just used to taking their medications every day um, and they uh, they don't understand different dosing regimes, then of course that can have quite devastating consequences. If you had someone that had a suspicious breast lump, for example, it was extremely important they understand that this might be really serious and how and when they should go and get further investigations. So it's it's those kind of things when there when there are high stakes decisions and this is nowhere more important than in the idea of informed consent. So consent is not considered legally valid unless the person understands what they've been told. It's not enough to tell them. It's not enough to write down. It's not enough for a consent form they've signed. None of that is sufficient. They have to have actually understood. 
So there's quite a famous case in the US where there was a, uh, a, a person who had a hysterectomy uh, that successfully sued um, that the consent wasn't valid, even though she signed a very comprehensive consent form because she didn't understand that having a hysterectomy meant she was unable to have children, that, she, that it was actually losing her womb. She didn't understand that. She didn't understand what a uterus was. She didn't understand what a hysterectomy was. She thought she was having this procedure because of period problems, but she didn't understand about what the consequences were. So that was rather a, a sad, but but you know, this, those kind of cases are not that unusual. Um, and this particularly goes when we're looking at consent is about understanding risk. People are really poor at understanding numbers. They're poor understanding of many words too, but numbers are really difficult. So when we're explaining risk, we need to make sure that we are doing it in a way that people can understand. One of the things that have been recommended is about looking at denominators being the same. So instead of saying something like there is a 1 in 20 risk of this happening and a 1 in 100 risk of this, this other thing will happen, people will often think that the 1 in 100 risk is actually higher than 1 in 20 because 100 is a bigger number than 20, which to us sounds ridiculous, but it's actually not it's understandable when people don't understand ratios and fractions um, that they may get confused by numbers. So if you are saying, if you are comparing, for example, a 1 in 20 risk to a 1 in 100 risk, it's a much better way to say there's a 5 out of 100 chance this would happen and a 1 in 100 chance this would happen. Uh, and then even better, saying something like that means there's a 95 um, out of 100 or 95% chance it won't happen um, versus a 99% chance it wouldn't happen. So given both the positive and the negative, particularly with percentages. So that's one recommendation for numbers. The other thing is trying to relate big numbers to kind of numbers that understand. So saying something like um, this means as if the, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, the MCG, was completely full. It means maybe one person would get this. Uh, or another thing would be saying that in the whole of Australia, then maybe three people would have this rare condition. You know, so those, those the kind of times that they, the, um, concepts they can grasp on because very large numbers are very difficult for people to understand. So um, you were mentioning, uh, Genevieve, at the start, you made a point that uh, one of the first things that we should do is identify uh, or recognize that the patient might not be understanding what we're saying. So uh, pick up that they might have poor health literacy and not make any assumptions. Uh, just thinking back to when I was in my second year, um, at the pretty much my first rotation as a resident, uh, I had the biggest clue smacked in my face uh, when it came to um, this patient not understanding what was going on with his health. His wife rang up because they were, I believe, I uh, they were transferred from, I think, Rockhampton or somewhere, some small, smaller town. She she rang up and yelled at me, um, saying that she didn't understand what was going on with her husband and why no one has updated her yet. And you know, I was just in shock uh, by how angry she was. And and I said to her, "Well, we've explained everything to him. Like, you know, why hasn't why haven't you asked him? Or you know, why haven't you?" 
uh, the two of you communicated with each other. And she basically said that, um, you know, that he, he didn't know what was going on. And the whole time we had assumed that he understood because he didn't ask any questions. Um, and so since that phone call, uh, I've changed the way I, I approach the patient and their families, um, not making any assumptions that they understood. It's an excellent story to, to uh, illustrate this point. So there are, are many factors there that can be contributing. And um, although you explain everything to a patient, they may not have understood or they may just not have good communication with their spouse because that's the other thing we've got to remember that good communication is not just about um, people in the professional sense. It also can be, as far as families go, how much the person wants to tell them, how they're able to explain it, etc. Well, very, very common that patients not only don't understand it, but maybe don't remember the details or are not able to explain it to someone else. So one of the tips which uh, can help in those kind of situations is if you are dealing with that particular patient, um, a, a way of maybe checking understanding is saying, yep, so you're, you're, you know you're not, your wife's going to ask you about what's going on, so what are you going to tell her? And so basically asking the patient to explain how they would explain to others, um, not directly making them feel that they are going, that they are uh, that you are checking their, their understanding, but just giving them sort of a hand of how they may explain it to a family member and also inviting them, of course, it has to happen with consent, but inviting them to bring a family member with them or for um, getting, your, getting their permission for you to call that family member so you can explain directly. So that is also often, particularly if you just got that feeling that that person doesn't really understand, actually offering to talk to a family member can be um, can be of use, particularly if it's something that's important. Yeah, so um, I think you mentioned this really uh, briefly at the beginning that you know, uh, patients' health literacy and understanding of um, their health does affect um, the way they might... Um, perceive or um, undertake treatment. So whether they're uh, compliant with their medications can be often related to their lack of understanding of why they need the medications or how it should be taken. And I think um, one of the mistakes that I've made in the past was assume that the patient was intentionally going against the doctor's advice and not taking the medication when really it was simply because they hadn't understood what it meant, um, why they needed the medication, what it was for. Absolutely, Dana. So sometimes we find these patients really frustrating and sometimes we think, you know, why just not doing what you're told? Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and then therefore the patient, the doctors can get kind of frustrated with the patients or angry with the patients, which makes someone that's got impaired health literacy shrink even further. Because often if people don't understand what doctors are talking about, they're quite embarrassed by that. And so that's why one of the worst questions to ask is, do you understand? That question is only ever going to get you um, an unable to be interpreted answer. Because if someone doesn't understand, but they are happy to accept that, to, to tell you they don't understand, they would have already asked you to clarify or asked you questions. If they're embarrassed about not understanding, if you ask them, do you understand, they will say yes or nod and smile sweetly. 
if they actually do understand, they'll also say yes. So it's really a bad question. It is something that when people don't understand um, and then are trying to do their best but don't remember or don't uh, know what the instructions mean, um, we have the situation where they can come back and either not be better or have not done what they're supposed to, but sometimes we just assume they have. So, a, a very common scenario might be someone that if you prescribe such an antihypertensive, for example, and then you see them back uh, in, the, in, the, in the future and their blood pressure is still very high and you assume that that's because the medication hasn't worked so they give you another give another medication um, which they perhaps don't always also often take or take the right way they're supposed to um, and so you end up uh, having this issue of people not taking what they're prescribed and sometimes it can be because they just don't want to but more often than not there's some other lack of understanding either with how to take it or why they should be taking it or the fact they do need to continue to take medications like statins or antihypertensives for the long term. It's not just, oh, I'll take it. Oh, my blood pressure's down now. Great, I can stop it. You know, the people need to understand that. Um, and just asking, you know, have you taken your medication or do you take your medication as you have been prescribed it? Those kind of questions, which are often asked in emergency or when someone's being admitted, um, again, if you have someone that either doesn't know that they're taking it incorrectly or embarrassed because they don't understand it, um, you're not going to necessarily get the right answers. And then sometimes when you then put them on a medication chart and they're doled out by the nurses in the correct way, sometimes you can have massive drops of blood pressure or drops in their BSL, etc., and they go, why? Why is this happening? And this is something for all of the junior doctors working um, in inpatient settings to be very cognizant of that very commonly people will have um, their vital signs will go off, not because they're sick, because they're actually be being given medication the way it was prescribed. Um, which actually may or may not be appropriate. So always keep that in the back of the mind. And it is much better instead of to ask, are you taking your medications or do you take it the way you prescribed it, is actually asking, so what do you take? When do you take it? Oh, I take the blue pill in the morning and I take this. But actually asking questions around that are much more is much more valuable, particularly if there's something that just doesn't make sense. So if you're giving someone a medication and it doesn't seem to be working, um, it's really important to, to drill down to those those nitty-gritty details. Mm. And this was uh, something that was discussed at the workshop. One of the um, attendees who was an ophthalmologist um, asked if, you know, pharmacists um, explain how to use medications to patients. And I remember you saying at the end of the day, the onus is on us as doctors to explain it to patients. I mean, yes, we doctors are busy, but so are pharmacists as well. Um, and if we're the ones prescribing it to patients, you know, deciding what they're taking and what for, we should be the one, ideally the ones explaining it to them, not leaving it to someone else. 
Yeah, Dana, that's that's a really good point, um, and that that's correct. That the onus is on the prescriber. It doesn't mean that we can't delegate. So, for example, if we have one of the just someone a nurse or someone to sit down with them and go through it in great detail, um, or again having the pharmacist to help out. So it's not saying that we have to do it all ourselves, but the onus is on us to make sure it's done either by us or by someone else. We can't rely on someone else doing it. The responsibility does lie with us Mm -hmm. to make sure that task is done. So we have covered a lot of ground on mistakes that doctors make when it comes to communicating with patients. Um, Are there any other common mistakes that we should be wary of? Yeah. So if we go a bit more broadly than just looking at impaired health literacy, uh, I think one of the other um, big mistakes doctors make generally with communication as patients is not showing enough empathy, um, not validating the people's distress and not listening properly to the patient. So developing that that trust and and the 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 rapport with the patients is critical to allow these other processes to happen, and this comes back to your earlier question about what makes me passionate about communication with patients. Um, it's because none of the other stuff is able to be done properly unless this stuff is worked out, unless you have rapport, unless they trust you, unless you actively and openly listen unless you validate their distress and and develop those skills to help show empathy. Unless that happens, forget the rest. Uh, And sometimes the most brilliant doctors medically, as far as their content goes, can have very, very poor patient outcomes um, because the patients simply don't understand what they're trying to tell them. So how can we as doctors improve our communication skills, um, you know, especially when it comes to communicating with our patients and helping them understand their own health? Thanks, Dana. Well, I think we've covered quite a few of the points already. But one thing I haven't yet mentioned that I wanted to uh, suggest as a tip um, is about the teach-back technique. Now, the teach-back technique is quite well known to lots of people. The idea is instead of asking, do you understand, you ask the patient to demonstrate their understanding. But the trouble is that when people do this technique, often they say, can you tell me what you understand of what we talked about or something to those, um, to that, uh, similar words to that. So essentially you're putting the patient um, on the spot, uh, essentially saying, do you understand well? Have you got the, the knowledge and the skills to be able to uh, to take in what I've taken in, what I've told you and, and, and give it back to me. And that can make someone feel uh, quite embarrassed or tested uh, in a way that, um, that makes them uncomfortable. So what I recommend with the teach back technique is a subtle change, which makes quite a significant psychological difference to how the patient perceives this kind of questions. So instead of asking them, can you explain what I've told you uh, with the emphasis of have you been a good patient enough to understand? I make it about me as in the clinician. So I say something like, 
Uh, this is a really complex co topic and I, I, I'm not sure that I've explained it well enough. Can you let me know um, what, what, I've, what we've been talking about so I can make sure that I explained it correctly? So it becomes not, have you been a good patient by understanding, but have I been a good doctor explaining it to you? So it puts the responsibility of explanation on me, not the, the responsibility of understanding on them. And people are very comfortable at usually at telling you you haven't done a good job. So they really tell, they're usually quite happy to say, no, actually, you didn't really explain it very well. Um, and so you can then re-explain it. If you did this all the time, it would take forever uh, and we don't have the time or energy to do this for everything, which is, comes back to my earlier point of you need to decide is this something that's really important for them to get right? And or do I get the feeling, if I have a bit of a spidey sense to think, I just don't think this person understands what I'm saying. You know, when you talk to someone, they feel that blank look that's back of you or just a, the gentle smiling nods and you're thinking, this is, this is not going in. In those cases, this teach back technique can be really important. And finally, I think that before you start launching into explanations of conditions or treatments, it's really important to get a feel for how much they already know. So, for example, if you're diagnosing someone with diabetes, you don't start by going, diabetes is a disease of sugar and blah, 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 and you just and just going through the whole parrot fashion explanation of diabetes, the first question you should be asking, so how much do you already know about diabetes? Or tell me what you know about diabetes. Um, and by establishing how much someone already knows, you can fill in the gaps, again, correct any misassumptions, um, and that can be a very time-saving technique. Given the fact that we are in a very time pressured profession, uh, making any kind of time-saving techniques while also um, improving to, leading to improved communication and improved outcomes um, are always as a, a, a very much a bonus. Now, uh, last question, Genevieve. I ask all my interviewees this question um, because this podcast is focused on doctors' well-being and mental health. Um, can you name one or two things that keep you sane in your very evidently crazy, busy life? Thanks, Dana. So that's a that's an interesting question, and I could say what the typical things is is I exercise regularly, which I do. Um, I take time for family and friends, etc., which I try to do. Don't do that all very well. Uh, but really, if I'm thinking back um, and thinking about what actually keeps me sane, there are a couple of things, and it really is about energy in and energy out. What I mean by that is uh, I, I really dislike the term work-life balance. I hate that term because it really <laughs> issue, it sort of says like that work is bad and life is good. Um, and sometimes life is bloody hard work. Some It's not mm. always that life, that uh, that situation. So I like to think instead of as what fills my energy pot up and what drains me. So it's a matter of knowing that sometimes some work stuff really does drain you and some work stuff can fill your bucket um, and likewise with life activities. So I think it's about keeping a, a, a balance on that energy levels. Um, for me, I, I really like communicating with people and we've spent the whole uh, last little while talking about communication, but communication can also be quite draining and so I find 
what keeps me sane is time by myself. Um, I have a strong introverted streak and I find that being away from people and away from communicating on a regular basis can help refill my energy pot so that when I am with people, I then am able to communicate um, in, a, in a way that uh, is not um, it's it's not too stressful for me and it's, and it's allowing me to do that in a positive way. Um, and I think the other thing that keeps me sane is, is really about attitude. Um, and that's – so rather than having – oh, this, uh, this activity is horrible and this activity is fun, just trying to find pleasure and uh, in all the things that I do. Um, and if there's something I don't enjoy doing, like the housework, um, I will try and pair it with something I do like doing, like listening to fun podcasts. So trying to have kind of pairing activities with positive and negative things to try and balance out their energy levels. Um, and then just everything that I do, trying to approach it with uh, an attitude of curiosity and also gratefulness, really looking for what um, being grateful for the wonderful things that I have and the opportunities I'm given. Um, and having that attitude as I move through life has, has done me very, very well. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, uh, tips and advice with us, uh, Genevieve, and for making the time to do this interview. My pleasure, Dana. It's been great. And I wish all your listeners all the best in their medical careers. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 